and welcome to a special 100th episode of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. Um, can you believe episode 100? Uh, in this episode, we are doing a Q&A and thankfully people sent in cues so that we can do A's, otherwise it would have been rather lonely. Um, really pleased to get those all in and looking forward to covering all sorts of topics, obviously mostly books. Yeah. Um, but before, very quickly, before we get onto that, uh, Rachel, how are you doing and what are you reading? I'm very well, thank you. Um, just got back from a little mini break in Barcelona, which was wonderful to travel again. Lovely. Um, yeah, and it was warm and sunny um, and saw a beautiful Gaudi house, um, which I probably can't pronounce in Spanish. Um, <laughs> Casa Batlo, apologies to all Spanish people, um, which was wonderful, just really beautiful and just lovely to, you know, be somewhere different. Nice. Yeah, so that was lovely. And I read a book while I was there, well, on the plane, there and, there and back. Um, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce the author's name correctly, so again, I apologise. It's Transcendent Kingdom by Yar Gyazi. Oh, uh, he's an American uh, Ghanaian writer, and it's fairly new. It just got published in last year, and it was wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. Really, really enjoyed it. Highly recommended. Nice. So that's me. What about you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Very uh, chilly in my little flat, but uh, I've got my blanket. Oh, it's perishing. Simon, tell everyone how tiny your little Christmas tree is. <laughs> it's about 30, 30 40 centimetres. <laughs> it's a little um, Christmas tragedy, that it's is. A tiny, it's, it's lovely, actually. I'm very pleased that I bought it from Saints, <laughs> Morrison's. Um, got, I've got some lights on it that are sort of dwarfing it. But I, yeah, my flat is very small. There are lots of books. They're basically there's there's nowhere I can put a, a tree and still be able to cross the room and or watch television. Um, so, yeah. And that's, I think, the point where you know you've got too many books. <laughs> um, well, possibly. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you going to do? Uh, and what I'm reading is um, The Willow Cabin by Pamela Franco, oh. or possibly A Willow mm-hmm. Cabin. I would build me a Willow Cabin. A Willow Cabin, yes, because uh, it's a quote from Twelfth Night where he gets the title um which is about uh an actress who runs off with a married man and sort of what happens to her after that i think i'm not that far into it so that might end up being just a small part of the plot it's quite a long book um so my third pamela franco novel i've really enjoyed the previous two and i'm enjoying this one uh have you read it no i don't think i've ever read any her i know i mean i know her novels and i know of her but i've never read anything by her Oh, my, the first one I read was A Wreath for the Enemy, for an Enemy, A Wreath for an Enemy, which was brilliant, really, really good. Uh, and then I read her first novel, The Marriage of Harlequin, which was very much, she was, I think she was about 19 or something when she wrote it, so, and you could tell, but it was fun. This mm. is another later one, I think. But enough of those things, because we've got questions to get to. Mm. Um, 37 of them, to be precise. So uh, we're going to take it in turns asking them, but most of them are for both of us to answer. Yes. So thank you so much for sending them in, and we'll start with probably a quite quick one from Caroline, which is to dunk or not to dunk. Well, I mean, I think I speak for everyone when I say it depends on the biscuit. Oh, well, tell me more. Well, some biscuits are more porous than others. Okay. Um, so, for example, if you dunk a rich tea, you're going to be in trouble pretty quickly, but you can dunk a hobnob with pretty high levels of success because it's quite dense. Um, also, I always dunk chocolate biscuits um, because you want the melting element. 
Well, I should say you don't speak for me because I am in all cases don't dunk. I, oh. I, it's the, I, I find it repellent when people put their biscuits in tea. It's like it's the same reason I don't have milk on cereal. It's like I don't want my food to be soggy. Oh, well, you mean you don't like the melted chocolate on a chocolate biscuit? The only thing, weirdly, I, if I'm having hot chocolate, I might dunk a biscuit into that, but not very often. But generally, mm-mm-mm. I want my oh, biscuits dry, I want my tea wet. You're missing out. <laughs> I mean, it is always sad when the biscuit disintegrates and goes to the bottom of your cup of tea, but then you get a little surprise at the end, so... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, question from Karen. What authors and or books are your absolute favourite new discoveries because of this podcast? Yeah, so good question, because we've done lots of books that we haven't read before. Um, I think my favourites are when we did Emily Eden. I hadn't read oh, wow. um, Semi-Detached House or The Semi-Attached Couple before. Uh, and I, I think I already own them, but I really loved particularly one of them and I can never remember which one's which the second of the ones in the volume um it was a real wonderful discovery for me I'm trying to think Um, typing away typing 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 (laughs) um looking up our past um episodes I'm trying to think what we've read recently is it Miss Hargreaves is that is that the best mm, (laughs) well actually do you know what to be fair to you Mm -hmm. I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to you did my favorite podcast moment <laughs> yeah so i will i will give you that um do you know what actually did we read lolly willows for the podcast we did yeah i think that's one of my favorite discoveries because again you know i'm not into anything fantastical we know this you know this is my thing um if it's not based in reality i'm not interested but the it took me completely by surprise it was not what i thought it was going to be at all I thought the writing was wonderful and I still have not actually explored any more of her novels. Um, Sylvia Townsend Warner, I should say. Oh, yes. Yep. Um, but I, I fully intend to. And that for me was a lesson in not judging a genre and saying that's not for me because actually it's, it's not always as, as straightforward as that. So I'm, it's made me a little bit more open to, to exploring outside of my, my preference zone, I should say. Excellent. Mm. Um, from Michelle, which book gave you the most joy as a child? Well, you know, my favourite book as a child, because I was such a little Victorian, um, is The Secret Garden. I mean, every time I, mm. I would read it again and again and again and again, and I just loved it. And it just that moment of when, you know, the gar- they go back into the garden and everyone's happy again. And it was just, and I also sort of identified with Mary as being a bit of a, you know, bossy child. <laughs> um, and I, I just really loved Ina Blyton. And if I had to pick one, I think I'd go with uh, The Enchanted Wood, which is the first of the Magic Faraway Tree yes. series. I just, I really captured my imagination. I haven't reread the Faraway Tree book since I was a child, so who knows? Yeah, if you I probably should. <laughs> but you know, yeah. Moonface and the slippery slip and all the different house, different worlds that appear at the top of the tree. Just, I thought it was just wonderful. Yeah, do you know what? Actually, I um I had a three in one edition of mm, the nice. Far Away Tree books that I got for a, a birthday present when I was about eight from a girl I didn't actually like in my class. <laughs> it's all coming back to me now. Oh my gosh. And I use I used to go to bed with it every night and I would read it every single night. Um, not the whole thing, obviously, yeah, but yeah. I was constantly 
rereading it and my mum would always be like do you want to should we try a different book it's like no I'm good with this one <laughs> so like once I'd graduated from the secret garden um that was that that those were my books and yeah, actually they yeah. were the first books my sister when my sister found out she was pregnant with my eldest nephew those were the first books she bought um ready for when he was going to be old enough to read them because we all loved them so much oh it's lovely but i'm sure they haven't stood the test of time i no, can imagine they're probably no. full of very questionable things so <laughs> take that recommendation best left nostalgic yeah yeah oh it's me it's you um so Richard has asked, where should I start with E.M. Delafield? Now, you're the expert on E.M. Delafield, Simon, aren't you? Well, yeah, I mean, I really, really love her. And I think, I mean, it sounds, it's a bit of a cop-out, but I do think the Provincial Lady books are her best and the ones to start with. I actually started with the second one, The Provincial Lady Goes Further, because it was the only one that my local library had when I wanted to start <laughs> try reading her. Um, which isn't, you know, maybe not ideal to start in the middle of a series, but it didn't stop me loving her. Um, I think... If the only thing is, if you start with those, you sort of get the impression that she's always very light and funny, and she is often light and funny, but there's a lot of very serious, sad ones out there. And I do think uh, a great one that's both happy, both funny and quite thoughtful is Tension, by, uh, which was recently republished in the British Library Women Writers series. And it sounds like I'm just advertising, but the reason it was <laughs> <laughs> chosen for that series is because I thought it was her best one that isn't a French lady book. So it all comes full circle. Mm. Um, yeah I think I would agree to start with Provincial Lady because that gives you I think the most accurate sense of her voice as a writer because as my, I actually for me I, I love Thank Heaven Fasting and think that's a wonderful book mm. but I think it's it's much darker than the majority of her writing and I think if you started with that you might get the wrong impression of what to expect when you went further and some people start with consequences. Which oh, which is, you one, know, which is yes. what, brilliant, but so miserable. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's not a light read, that's for sure. Um, and then someone who uh, under the Instagram handle can read will read asks, "What are your favourite books by people of colour?" Oh, um, I love James Baldwin. Okay. I think he he's a wonderful writer. Um, Another country is a masterpiece. But I also um, really like his, I uh, oh, can't think of, I can see the front cover, but I can't think of what it's called. Um, hang on, I'm going to Google it. Go Tell It and on I, the Mountain. Yes, Go Tell It on the Mountain, which I thought was wonderful. It's an amazing book about the relationship between father and son. Um, and is, you know, so it's autobiographical and it's so raw and beautiful. And he really explores that conflict between love and, and hate and you know that that you can sometimes feel about people that are close to you um and let me think about i love um alice walker i'm going american here yeah um color purple i think is fantastic um i also absolutely love the the book i just read by yag yazi um i think she's written homecoming as well before this one and i want want to read that i think that's brilliant chimamanda ngozi adichie absolutely love her books um americana's fantastic so it's purple hibiscus um i'm trying to you go and then i'll see if i can add some more <laughs> sure well i was going to mention uh chimamanda ngozi adichie as well um and in fact the two that you mentioned are my favorite two of hers um 
and Helen Oyemi. I really love her. Some of the, sometimes they're a bit too experimental for me, but Bo- Boy Snowbird is brilliant. I read Mr. Fox and Pieces, two different books, uh, this year. Particularly Mr. Fox, I thought was uh, really interesting and good. Um, mm. I really like Miguel, Miguel Sayuko, based on the one book I've read by him, um, which is called Illustrado. I was very. I went. To, I spent a month in the Philippines once, and I was very keen to read a book uh, by a Filipino or, um, author. I was hoping to read one translated from Tagalog, but I couldn't find any that were. Um, and the most famous book by a Filipino, I now can't remember the title of, but was translated from Spanish, and I, uh, I thought, well, not quite the same. Um, so this the one uh, illustrator was actually written in English originally. It's an American Filipino writer. Oh right. Um, one of my favourite books that I first read when I was a teenager is *The God of Small Things* by Arantati Roy. Um, she's an Indian writer. Um, trying to think as well what I've read recently that I've really enjoyed. Well, that's plenty. We've got loads of questions yeah, to lots go. of so, lots of questions yeah. to go. Yeah, lots, lots. So, um, for me, for Simon. Yes. From Susan, who is not happy with you. <laughs> Did I hear correctly that you dislike Lord Peter Whimsey? If so, why? I just finished Strong Poison and found him rather charming and self-deprecating. Explain uh, yourself. <laughs> Susan, you did hear this correctly. And self-deprecating, my goodness. For those who don't know, Lord Peter Whimsey is the detective hero of Dorothy L. Sayers' novels, and to my mind, one of the worst people in fiction. Um, <gasps> so he's, I think he's the opposite of self-deprecating. I just found it so... I couldn't cope with how arrogant he was, how much he just looks down on everyone else who wasn't him and his silly little mottos. And, oh, I can't... I, I liked him more in that one that we read, Whose Body, than I did in um, Gordy Knight. I just could... Like, Gordy Knight made me truly loathe him. So, sorry, Susan. Well... <laughs> I'm pretty I mean, sure I, oh, sorry. I don't agree with that. No, I'm no. Say. <laughs> and Susan, I... Not your book's opinion. I agree. I also find him charming and self-deprecating. And also, he has PTSD from World War One. What is wrong with you? <laughs> That's completely irrelevant. Have some compassion. <laughs> uh, Susan has a question for you as well, uh, although I don't think you're going to get hot water for, for it. It's, uh, what is your favourite work of literature to teach? And Susan either is or was a teacher, and her, says her favourite is Jazz by Toni Morrison. Oh, I never taught any Toni Morrison, actually. I was taught Toni Morrison when I was at school. Um... God, what a question. I mean, obviously, I've taught many different ones over the years. I think, do you know what? The one I've enjoyed teaching the most in terms of how it's challenged my students and made them completely change their minds from when they read it on their own to when they read it with me is To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Mm, okay. So I taught that to my sick formers and I've done it. I did it twice over. And yeah, they went from, I did not understand a word of this to being like oh my goodness she's a genius at the end Mm -hmm. and just really loved exploring that with them and the true kind of experience as a teacher of opening something up to people um and helping them find something in it that they wouldn't have ever found themselves it was really wonderful experience and also with wonderful students which always helps that's great yeah over to you Oh, right. Yes. Sorry. I keep forgetting that. <laughs> so ooh, another one for, for you from, from Susan. How did you happen upon women writers of the first half of the 20th century as your primary reading interest and why spinsters? Yeah. So I, um, 
I think this is my indirect routine with AML, and I'd started reading him, and I got a book called Modern Humour, published in 1940, that had excerpt or little sketches from lots of different writers. It included Ian Delafield, amongst others. Um, and that sort of set me off exploring... More. It was a great collection for exploring lots of different writers and trying them out and um, getting to know them. Uh, and I think... I was just at an impressionable age then. I was about 16, I guess. Uh, and at a time when my reading tastes had just been, I'd just gone through all my teen reading. I was looking for something else and it really captured me and it never looked back. Spinster's harder to say why I just find it, why I find, um, unmarried women in fiction so fascinating. Uh, maybe because it's one of those topics that can either be, very poignant and sad or can be very funny or is a great basis for something some big change in the narrative or something fantastical happening um and i guess it's something to do with the period as well there are so many unmarried women because of world war one and so Mm. lots of writers in the period that i'm interested in were taking them up as their as their theme yeah Yeah. Uh, and um simon just out of interest mm. you know you obviously did your your phd in this area Mm. are is there a lively research interest in the period and on spinsters or not so much? Yeah, there isn't. It's partic- there, um, particularly starting maybe a couple of years before I started my DPhil, there was been much, much more in this period and with Middlebrow writers. Uh, mm. Nicola Humble's book, The Feminine Middlebrow Novel, was very influential in that field. And before that, Nicola Bowman's a very great profession. Um, and yeah, I, it's obviously not you know, Shakespeare is not, it doesn't get the same amount of funding or the same amount of international interest. But I certainly didn't feel alone when I was studying this period. There were lots of conferences and people who are still, who are in that area. But um, I think it's, depending on which university you go to, harder to persuade people that it's worthwhile. A lot of mm-hmm. the times it comes in through universities who are interested in popular culture studies. Okay. Uh, um, which, you know, at Oxford, people were not particularly interested in popular <laughs> culture studies. So I didn't, there wasn't much of a community of research at Oxford, but I found them elsewhere. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Gina asks, where is your favourite place to read? Mm. Um, in bed. Interesting. Because I, ne- yeah, I almost never, re- no, I read in bed in the mornings, and I love that. I never read in bed in the evenings. Um, Oh, I love that. It's my favourite time of day when I've like actually got myself into a decent routine at night and I'm not lost in a hole on the internet. And <laughs> I like make myself a nice drink. I go to bed. I get like, you know, I get my candle going, um, get snuggly. I have my book and it's just like, t- and I don't have any screens near me and it's just me and my book. And I just allow myself to relax and it's wonderful. So you're in bed in the evening with a lit candle. You're you're definitely going to fall asleep and burn your house down. Well, no, because <laughs> I'm obviously so riveted by what I'm reading that I'm staying awake. Well, I hope so, dear. Um, I mean, the place I read most often is just my sofa, I guess. But uh, I maybe my favourite place to read is a, a window seat. I love a window seat. I don't have mm-hmm. one, but in my head, it would be a window seat. Yeah, I mean that's the dream, isn't it? You know, you've achieved something in life when you got a window seat. Yeah, one day, one day, one day. Um, okay, from Michelle, do you have a lowbrow guilty secret? Um, I don't feel too guilty about it, but my lowbrow secret is that I love celebrity memoirs and I love them <laughs> only, <laughs> only if they're audiobooks. I'm, I don't particularly want to, re- I just want, and, and have to be read by the celebrity. And it's not like 
really trashy celebrities. It tends to be comedians, but things like Mindy Carling's book and Issa Rae's book and uh, Anna Kendrick and like all these people, I, I love listening to to them talk about their their shavers careers. I don't think that's particularly lowbrow. Well, it's not. It's not highbrow, and I would be, maybe it's middlebrow. I don't really know what counts as lowbrow in that case. Cause I guess lowbrow is just watching TV, and I do that a lot. So. I don't even have a TV, so... <laughs> um, I think, for me, my guilty pleasure reading is, like, you know, trashy early 20th century murder mysteries. Mm. Um, also, contemporary. I do, because like, when I go to my parents and I've, I don't take a book with me, my parents read... Um, they do really like, you know, quality stuff normally that I've, I've provided, but um, <laughs> they also have the kind of, you know, some of the latest thrillers or whatever. And sometimes I will read one of those and be like, oh, actually, this is quite good. But only if I'm there. <laughs> Uh, Bill says, the typical tea or book's favourite is a finely observed mm-hmm. domestic-focused short novel. But do you ever read philosophical novels? Moby Dick, The Man Without Qualities, In Search of Lost Time. What happens when you do read one? Well, Bill, um, yes, I do, um, quite often, um, and I'm trying to think of what what would count as a philosophical, I mean, I haven't read any of these three. Um, I have read Moby Dick. What's The Man um, Without Qualities? It's by Robert Muzzle, I don't know how to pronounce his surname, so I'm like mm-hmm. I, don't, I haven't read that one. I mean, I guess. I mean, would we call Donna Tartt a philosophical novelist? I suspect Bill wouldn't. No. Um, what would we... I don't know what we would count as a philosophical novel. I mean, I love to... Milan Kundera, who is very philosophical, uh, but not yeah, very long. It. So maybe that's the difference. Um, mm. I like that we have a, have a t- typical favourite. That's nice. And I, yeah, it's that true, is we, nice. we do love finely observed domestic focus short novels. We well, do. I mean, you're not bothered if they're short or not. You know I love a short yeah. novel. Um, I mean, are we thinking like Tolstoy and that sort maybe. of thing? Kind of more classics? Because, I mean, certainly, yeah. I mean, I do read them, and most of the time I enjoy them very much. Um, and But, I mean, yeah, I guess the thing is with me is I read all of that stuff when I was at university many, many years ago, and I and I haven't didn't love them enough to want to revisit them. <laughs> and I think finally observed domestic focus novels are often very philosophical, just in a different way, I guess. Well, indeed, they are covering the business of life, aren't they? Aren't they? Mm. Um, Carol says, you talk a lot about the different publishers for the books that you enjoy. Dean Street Press, Furrowed Middlebrow, British Library Women's Writers and others. Can you give any personal information or background about some of these publishers? Well, I can certainly talk about British Library Women's Writers uh, because I'm the series consultant for them, as, as <laughs> long <laughs> <the> listeners will know. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the background for that is that they had the crime classic series that was it, and continues to be extremely successful and then wanted to diversify. So they got in touch or someone there knew my blog, got in touch with me, asked if I wanted to be involved. It took maybe 18 months, two years after that for the first book to come out. But uh, yeah, they just wanted to do books by and about women, like illuminating elements of women's lives in the early to mid 20th century. Um, and then, yeah, Furried Middlebrow, which is a, a series from Dean Street Press. I guess similar. I don't know the background to how it started, but it, um, it's a very similar sort of book. They tend to do more... Um, 
you know, they'll do lots and lots of books by the same writer will come out at the same time. Uh, they, they beat me, it'll pit me to the post for Marjorie Sharp. That was the one <laughs> they've done that I really wanted to do. Um, but uh, I don't know if that counts as pertinent information. But uh, well, I know Scott, who runs the blog forward Middlebrow, is the guy who selects things there, and he uh, has an encyclopedic knowledge of of books from this period. I asked him, in fact, to be a guest on the podcast once, but he didn't really he didn't want to do podcasts, which is a shame because I really mm-hmm. wanted him to. But um, he's a one. Check out his blog. Check out their list. They're brilliant. Yeah. Should I add something? Or I mean, I don't. If you if you have to. anything to add, otherwise, should I just go on to the next one? Yes, yeah, going to the next one. This is from Gria. There's one for each of us here, actually. So, uh, Rachel, tell us more about your playwriting interests. And Simon, are you writing a novel? So, do you want to mm-hmm. go first? Yeah, so I'm doing a master's in playwriting at the moment. Um, and I've always loved the theatre, always loved plays. I've always been a drama teacher alongside an English teacher. Um, and I love the crafting of plays and how they say so much while saying so little on the page, if you see what I mean. Um, I also love the uh, collaborative nature of plays and how it's an imaginative relationship, more so with a novel between the reader and or the audience, obviously, and the writer, because there's so much you've got to fill in for yourself. You don't get any descriptions, particularly with modern plays. You know, there are hardly any stage directions these days. So, um, yeah, I just love the these kind of worlds in miniature and the opportunity for you to interpret them as you wish and... Um, what I love really is, um, the kind of the, the difference between what's on page, what's on the page and then what you see on the stage and how the two things come together. So yeah, I just, I mean, I, I just love dramatic writing really. And, um, I love dialogue and I love, um, the thing. I also love all the things that we don't say. And I love seeing that on stage. Mm, lovely the, the silences yeah so what about you simon are you writing a novel well i wrote a novel uh, that, that i started pitching to agents in february 2020 and then when the pandemic came i i thought i can't cope with rejection and pandemic so i stopped because i was yeah the ones i emailed it to rejected it but I, I will keep going at some point i shan't say too much about it but i will say it's called the appearance of malachi holt there you go. I hope I'm going to get the chance to read this at some point. Oh, at this... some point, surely you will. Yeah, and I started writing another one uh, that, again, I just, uh, some people found p- pandemic and lockdown a great time to do lots of writing. I found I could not, so it's all on hold for for a while. Oh. Wow. Um, Jane says, how did you meet and why did you start a podcast? So yeah, we both had book blogs, and I believe yeah. we first met at a was it twenty ten ish in that meetup in the Lamb Pub. Yes. Yes, on Lamb's Conduit Street that I organised yeah. with Kim from Reading Matters. Oh yes, that's memory yeah. is just coming back to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we started the podcast. Twenty ten, my God. Yeah. yeah. So it was only actually five years after that we started the pod. We've been podcasting for six years, I think. Have we? Maybe it's five years. A long time. Oh God, time flies, isn't it? And why did you start one? Well, I, the reason I wanted to start one is I'd appeared as a guest on a podcast called The Readers that doesn't happen anymore, but um, Simon Savage and Thomas from, from Hogglestock uh, co-hosted that, and I was visiting Thomas in Washington, D.C. Well, I wasn't visiting him. I was just there, and I went to see him. <laughs> <laughs> I was visiting my friend Lorna, who used to be He was on the podcast episode here. Uh, and I enjoyed so much being a guest on that, I thought I would like to start one myself. Thought, who's great? Asked Rachel. No, but why did you say yes, I guess, Rachel, is the question. Well, do you know what? I just thought it would be interesting to try something different. I mean, I'm I'm not really um, 
that au fait with all the technology and what have you. <laughs> um, and I'm also not a big podcast listener myself because I have problems staying focused when listening to things um, without any visual stimulation. I don't know why that is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought it would be interesting. And I also thought, you know, writing a blog is a conversation with yourself, whereas being a podcast is, is a conversation with not just you, but also listeners. And I think that kind of that communal element really appealed to me and also i think you're very funny and knowledgeable and interesting to talk to obviously goodness you too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me actually it's got we've got some questions for gina coming up but she did she did also comment that you have the most soothing voice uh rachel so, oh, how and I, I told her i don't like complimenting you but i will if i have to <laughs> <laughs> um I'm going to ask this question, but I think you don't know the answer, so I should probably answer it, which Pamela says, what is the name of your intro music and how did you choose it? I don't know the answer. <laughs> and it's called Smiling Skies by Benny Meroff. Um, it's lovely, I'm... isn't it? Smiling yeah. Skies. Isn't that nice? Um, and maybe at the end of the episode, I could, I'll try and put in a bit longer, maybe the whole thing, if, I, if we've got the rights to that, um, <laughs> so you can hear the whole sort of three-minute song at the end, if you like to. Uh, which I've found by just going to a free music site, or you, whether you, I think I just search free music for podcast intros or something, and then once I got there, I searched nineteen twenties jazz, uh, and that was one of the ones that one of the first ones I listened to. And I thought, well, this sounds lovely and sounds very, you know, that's the sort of vibe that I thought. I just wanted something that sounded a bit old fashioned, but quite jaunty and mm -hmm. fun. And I think I love yeah. that word. Jaunty. jaunty jaunty i've been using the word peppy a lot at the moment so it's quite peppy um it's the worst word to say for a podcast microphone isn't it so many plosives but um uh we did get another question from someone asking if we'd consider changing it but i don't know if that was because i because i didn't because like I it, it. Or, <laughs> because i love it i, I guess you don't why. really hear it's it very cheerful. yeah um yeah thanks pamela Oh, yeah. Um, Elisa asks, what do you enjoy about podcasting and why do you keep doing it rather than just blogging? Yeah, well, I guess you covered some of that just now, didn't yes. you? I, um, I love that it's collaborative, that we get to chat about stuff, that um, you get, um, you can get immediate, I guess the immediate feedback on blogging, but it's nice. I just love the idea that people are downloading it and listening to it and having sharing their thoughts and just being part of people's days in a way that blogging, they have to you know set aside time or they're on their laptop, which like we might be in someone's car or going on a walk mm -hmm. with someone or being on the background while they're cooking or that sort of thing. We are the soundscape for people's lives. <laughs> I mean, it, it fills me with horror to think that my awful high-pitched voice is being projected into the home. <laughs> soothing. Gina said it was soothing. Well, Gina's very kind. I would never um, classify my voice as being <laughs> soothing. I hate my voice, but... Um, oh, you lovely that's, voice. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think it's... It's a lovely way to, I think, connect more meaningfully with people because certainly in the early days of blogging, you know, this was before YouTube and things like that were a big deal. Mm. Um, cause you and I have both been blogging for a long time, although I say mm -hmm. blogging, I mean, I've, I've not written anything in months. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, there was very much, there was no way to really kind of connect with people or to see who they were or hear their voices. And I guess once you feel like you've got to know somebody through their writing, it it feels like you know you want to make that deeper connection and this offers us that opportunity i know people can't see us but they can hear us and i think and actually i should add here you got recognized by your voice the other day. oh yes <laughs> so, a little <laughs> shout out to ruth hi ruth i was in a i was in a bookshop in gloucestershire 
uh, with a couple of friends. We were just chatting, and I went to the counter, and Ruth, I said, are you Simon from Stuck in a Book? <laughs> Recognised your voice, which was lovely. There we go, celebrity. I know. She said, you must get this all the time. I can confirm, <laughs> I do not get it all the time. <laughs> so it was very exciting. It's never Have happened you... to me. Never. <laughs> is it not? Is it not? No. Well, one time, actually, we were when we went to the theatre together to see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, someone messaged me later saying, I was sat behind you and Rachel at the theatre. <laughs> so oh. there you go. We didn't say anything at the time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I did. I felt very, very, um, very famous in front of my friends who were very impressed. But if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be in a secondhand bookshop, isn't it? Well, I just think that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are your also oh, Louise says? What are your favourite books by? Sorry, books for adults by writers known for their children's books. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I really love actually Louisa May Alcott's adult books and also Frances Hodgson Burnett's adult books um, and they are both writers who um, they w- wanted to be known for their adults writing and were not happy that their children's writing is what brought them fame and fortune um, they wanted to be um, you know they didn't perhaps ascribe as much literary value to their, their their children's writing which I think is is a mistake but again that's I guess a product of the time um, and yeah so for me I think Frances Hodgson Burnett's The Shuttle is a wonderful novel that really looks very specifically at the these kind of um oh they had a name didn't they those american brides that were married into aristocratic families in britain Um, i can't can't think um there's a term for it anyway it'll come to me probably about half an hour um and (laughs) that look at that relationship between power gender money and the loneliness of being in another country and finding yourself trapped um is very interesting and heartbreaking and you know it's not your typical it's not you know it's not like the most high form of literature in the world but it's just really interesting um and louisa may alcott wrote some really fantastic and quite feminist um adult books many of which have been out of print for a long time and they're quite hard to get hold of but she was always disappointed by the fact that they didn't get as much attention as Little Women, and they are worth hunting out. I obviously can't remember any of their names now. <laughs> I but, don't know, yes. I'm afraid. I mean, obviously, A. O. Milne is mm-hmm. one of my very favourite writers and is best known for Winnie the Pooh, uh, and like you were saying with Louisa May Alcott, was a bit resentful. Not, you know, he's still very happy, I'm sure, that his books did well, but had lots of other things that he would have loved people to remember more. Um and uh, yeah, basically any of his books, but I'll put a shout out for Mr. Pym Passes By, his novel that I really, really love. Uh, Richard Crompton's adult novels really enjoy. Yes. Um, of course. Uh, and I really love Miss Ranskill Comes Home by Barbara Euphrin Todd, uh, best known for Words of Gummage. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I think a lot of them, I, th- I think now it's more common for a writer to just be a children's writer. Obviously, there mm. are some who do, who do more than that, but. Um, at the time, you know, early 20th century, it did seem more that they were more likely to do both, perhaps. Yeah. Okay. Um, Michelle asks, who is the best written character in fiction? Who is your favourite? That's a big question, isn't it? Isn't it? And yes, she's not necessarily the same. Mm. Um, I, 
yeah, I can't, certainly you can't say he was definitely the best, but I think I think it's always really impressive if an author can make you love someone who's very virtuous because it's quite hard to make them not come across as priggish or mm. you know annoying. And so I might put forward Septimus Harding from the um, Chronicles of Barsetshire, particularly The Warden by, by Anthony Trollope, who is very thoughtful, very lovely, um, and the whole novel is about whether or not he should accept payment for almshouses or something like that. So it's quite a, on the surface, dull topic, but done so beautifully, and I just really, really love him. Uh, my favourite is Miss Hargraves, obviously. <laughs> we'll obviously. Later, I'm sure, in some other question. How about you? Well, I think mine are one and the same for these questions. And I wonder if you can guess what I'm going to say. Well, what I'm, I don't know, you, you say, because I th- Michelle wrote something else that, I'm, that I didn't put down here, but you go and you say what it is. For me, it's Emma. In, in <laughs> Michelle said, if Rachel picks Emma, she has to choose another. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Michelle knows you very well. Michelle, you do know me very well. Oh, no. Okay. Um, let's think. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. I was really hoping you would, and I thought you probably would. I just love her so much. Um, who else is my favourite character from fiction? This is a good question because sometimes you know I'll, I can love a book, but not necessarily the character within it. Well, can I say it's going to be another Jane Austen? It's, this is really hard for me. I'm trying to think what my other favourite novels are. The kids at school always tell me it's my favourite book, Miss. But like, well, it's either Emma or Persuasion, depending on the day. But. I do have other favourite books. I don't just read Jane Austen. <laughs> well, you can pick Anne Elliot if you like. No, do you know who I'm going to pick? Mm-hmm. Best written character in fiction, Mrs. Elton. Aha, uh-huh. okay, nice. <laughs> Got out on a technicality, great. Yes, okay. <laughs> um, Gina says, what are your favourite cosy books that make you feel comforted, warm and happy? Oh, that's a lovely question, isn't it? Um comforted warm and happy well you know obviously um emma um (laughs) if i really um, you know like when you're tired and you just you can't concentrate and you just need something that's easy Hmm. i love the misread book oh you do don't you yeah yeah i particularly love the thrush green series if you it's like a hot water bottle that book and a cup of hot chocolate together (laughs) with some shortbread biscuits Nice. Yeah. Um, I think I will go with I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. That is which, lovely. Yeah, I mean, sad things happen in it, and, you know, she's not an idyllically happy character, but, it, it, but the reading experience is just a, mm. comforting and lovely. Yeah. Well, I haven't read that in ages. I must reread it. Yeah, always worth a reread. Um, Gerard asks, which book podcast do you listen to? And I'm, I don't listen to any because, as before mentioned, I can't do listening <laughs> <laughs> uh, I listen to a lot so um, Backlisted which I was on recently uh, yes, really love that uh, I love I think the one that's probably closest to our taste is Lost Ladies of Lit mm. uh, they've done quite a lot of authors that we've done including Emily Eden uh, that's really fun I love the Book Club Review podcast um, If old episodes of The Readers are great I love um, A Good Read the Radio 4 show that's uh, a podcast um, I really love Teenage Scream about point horror books and Goosebuds about Goosebumps <laughs> books and reliving my pre-teen reading habits. Oh dear. Um, reading the End with uh, Jenny, who was a guest on this oh, podcast once. Jenny. Uh, and, and her other, and her friend Jenny, there's two Jennies on that one. Um, 
I'm sure I'm missing some that I listen to, but uh, that's a good place to start. Um, yeah, those are all wonderful. Um, and Colin, my brother, in fact, says, <laughs> what would you call your autobiography? Oh, dear. Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I've never thought about it. Um, what would you call yours? I have thought about it. <laughs> I always thought I would call it otherwise, simply so the French translation could be called Sino by Simon, like because it looks oh, like Simon. Uh, yeah, very good. All right. Thank I you. love that you've already decided right, it. it would be sufficiently right, so popular <laughs> to be translated into French. <laughs> but I think it's a good title for an autobiography anyway. So, yeah. Yes, no, that's very good. Um, I don't know what I would call my autobiography. That's I feel like it has to be something, you know, I feel like it has to be something like witty yet profound. Um, and I feel like I can't be either of those things. <laughs> I think you should call it Simon Thomas as I knew him. <laughs> oh dear. Right. Yeah. Go for the next one. Um, Sarah, can you recommend some Persephone books? I have just bought National Provincial by Letters Keeper after hearing Rachel recommending it. Well done, Sarah. Thank you very much for listening to our recommendation. <laughs> and also have Guard Your Daughters on my shelves. Right. So it sounds like Sarah is a Persephone um, novice. So she's got mm. her first two. So where would we go next? And yes, Guard Your Daughters by Diana Tartan is one of my very favourites. So great you start got there. And it, Simon. To them, I did, well, I did. Um, Take yeah. your credit, Mary. <laughs> I don't know if that's why they did it, but um, but they, yes, I, I I do. I am mentioned in the back of it, and they have a little collage of different reviews. Are you in there as well? Maybe I, I am think. indeed. I yes, am indeed. Okay. Um, oh well, just I'll pick some off the top of my head that I love. Hostages to Fortune by Elizabeth Cambridge, which is about a doctor's wife in the Oxfordshire countryside. Love that one. Uh, London War Notes by Molly Panterdowns, which is mm. non-fiction reporting back on the Second World War every fortnight. Um, mm. She wrote for The New Yorker. Uh, so it's it's this great sort of, it's written for an audience who wouldn't know exactly what was going on, but, but have some awareness. Um, and I'll pick a third. Well, uh, well uh, <laughs> mine's gone blank. Oh, uh, something by Artie Sheriff. Um, oh, yeah. Green, Green Gates by Artie Sheriff about a couple... Um, retiring are they retiring well they're, mo they're moving to a new house and it's very very simple but absolutely yeah. lovely lovely book my mum loves those absolutely loves mm. them I remember when I gave her fortnight in September and she was like oh it's just a such a lovely book such a lovely book like, oh <laughs> so nice um for me I would say you have to read a Dorothy Whipple um mm. and what would I encourage somebody to start with I mean all of her books are marvellous but I probably would start with someone at a distance yeah um, which is excellent. I think uh, another choice that I would recommend is, if you want a non-fiction choice, Into the Whirlwind by Eugenia Ginsberg, which is about um, Russia and the gulags, etc. I mean, it's it's not an easy read, but it's it's necessary. Um, and what's my other favourite that I really love and come back to all the time? Um, I mean, Dorothy Buffett was my favourite Persephone author, without a doubt. Um, Molly Pantadown's One Fine Day is not Persephone, is it? Uh, no, although they've tried, but, uh, no. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. right. Uh, it should be. Um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Um, because I'm not in the lounge, I can't see my bookshelves. Um, 
Well, that's plenty. That's plenty. There's plenty yeah. for you to be getting along with, but I mean, they're all they're all marvellous. Um, yeah, you can't go far wrong, can you? You can't go far wrong. Uh, Jill asks, why is Simon's cat called Hargreaves? I was so mm-hmm. happy that someone asked about Hargreaves. Um, I'll answer that one first and then come on to the other bit. He's called Hargreaves after Miss Hargraves. Um, so my favourite book by Frank Baker that is mentioned on this podcast many, many times. Many times. <laughs> um, including having its own episode. Um, and he's also sort of named after Roger Hargreaves of Mr. Men fame because I still, still do love the Mr. Men. Uh, I wanted to give him a literary name. I expected to get a female cat. Um, so when I had a male cat, he is named after a woman, but you know, he doesn't seem to mind. Um, and would Rachel have a dog or cat? And what literary name would you give? Gosh, um, I just want to say, I just remembered I didn't mention Little Boy Lost by Margarita Lasky. Mm, okay. I think I would definitely say that for a Persephone book. Um, I would have a dog. I am not a cat person, as Simon knows. Certainly not. Well, you've not met Hargreaves yet. Well, it I change everything. <laughs> Um, it won't change anything. Um, <laughs> I don't do cats. I think that they are evil creatures who also um, are entirely self selfish. Um, dogs want a relationship with you, and are wonderful. Um, and don't, I just don't expect don't expect my friends to obey me. It's actually, you know, it's just a more honest friendship with a cat. Mm. Yeah, or the cat <laughs> is like doesn't even care that you exist and just comes to you for food. That's basically. Hargreaves is obsessed with me. Yeah, because he knows that you give him his food anyway. Um, I would have a dog, and what literary name would I give him? Oh, hmm, good question. Do you know what? I would probably be really basic and call him something like Watson or Sherlock. Mm-hmm. I can see a Lord Peter Whimsy as a dog. Yeah, but the thing is, what you've got to think about when it, because, you know, you always think of these fancy names, but on a practical level, you've got to yell that name when you're out on the street and it mm, can't take true. you that long. I mean, what, what you really want is a one or two syllable name. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. that dog's getting run over. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> right, your turn. Um, Peter asks, do you think that the way bookshops categorise books is generally helpful or off-putting? When and why is a particular novel categorised as, for example, crime or fantasy or LGBTQ plus? And when is it not? That's a very good question. Yeah, I think genre categorizations probably are useful. Uh, they obviously things can be porous, but generally, I think there's a very definite sort of book that is a crime book or a fantasy book. I do find things less helpful if they're just about who the author is. So when you might get like a Scottish shelf in a library, mm-hmm. in, a, in a bookshop in Edinburgh, or even LGBTQ plus authors, I think that doesn't tell me a lot about what the book's about. And I don't care whether a book I'm reading is by a Scottish author or by an English author. or what. Yeah, I do. So particularly when someone like Muriel Spark is categorised on a Scottish shelf, and yes, she was Scottish, but only one of her books is set in Scotland, and she lived in Italy for most of her life. So I, I don't know. I, I find that quite unhelpful. Um, I think it, it's, it's helpful if it's going to tell you something about the reading experience, is my opinion. Yeah, I think um, I think categorization is also sometimes quite limiting and um, almost judgmental. And so, for example, you know, classifying something as a young adult novel because it it features a young person. It doesn't necessarily mean that it should only be read by teenagers, but if you put something in that section of the of the store, then nobody else is going to find it unless they go there for it. Um, 
I also, yeah, I don't like it when books are classified based on an identity of, of, of a writer, um, a national identity, a sexual identity, a gender identity or whatever. I'm like, well, that doesn't tell me anything about the book. I don't care who the author is. I don't, you know, I want to know what the book's about. Um, so I don't think that's helpful. Uh, what I do like, though, um, I do think Daunt Books is does something different mm-hmm. in in London where they... Um, and in Oxford, thank you very and, much. Oh, right, sorry, I didn't realise there's one in Oxford. Thank you, pardon. Um, <laughs> they categorise their books by country of where it's set. And actually, I do find that really fun, especially when, you know, you're going on holiday somewhere or you've got a friend who is interested in a particular place and you want to get a gift. You know, you can often find things you would never have heard of otherwise if you, you know, it, when you go to the sections in there, and you're like, oh, wow, OK, this book's set in I don't know Italy or whatever. So I think that's that's nice. And that can sometimes be unexpected. But I think, you know, if I if I'm looking for a book and I don't know that the author is you know scottish or whatever then i'm not going to know where to find it so i think um i also think a lot of the time these days books kind of are more diverse in that they encompass several genres so Mm -hmm. you know if you decide it's a crime novel when actually someone else could perhaps define it as literary fiction then if you put it in the crime section somebody you know people are going to make value judgments and they're not necessarily going to go and look for it somewhere so I think it's a it's a tricky question, really. And um, I think it's yeah, we've got to categorise somehow, I guess. But for me personally, I just prefer to have it done by author surname. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, just keep it simple. Keep it simple. I'll decide what the genre is when I read the book. (laughs) One thing I did like about a novelist I love called Angela Young. um, It's the first book I was ever quoted on the back of, which was... Um, in Blackwell's, sorry, Waterstones in, in Oxford, obviously young towards the end of the alphabet. Um, so it's on the final bookcase, which is also where they shelved the erotica. So at the top of the shelf, it said erotica. <laughs> and there was this very sort of non-erotic novel about storytelling and gen, you know, generations of a family and stuff. Um, that was funny. Uh, Deb asks, can you each suggest the perfect pairing of a book with a variety of tea to drink with it? Wow. Oh, okay. Um, so, I would, as it is this time of year, I'm mm. going to suggest a Christmas book. Okay. So I would recommend Christmas Pudding by Nancy Mitford, which is one of my favourite Christmas books. Um, silly and frothy and fun. And um, with my favourite tea blend at the moment, which I'm very much enjoying, it's caffeine free. So it's perfect for drinking before bed for those of us who have got too old to be able to have caffeine before bed. <laughs> And it's by Pucker Teas. I'm not sure how available they are outside of the UK. Apologies in advance, but I'm sure you'll be able to find a, a local alternative. It's a vanilla chai. Mm. Delicious. It's Christmas in a cup. Um, and I'm also going to stay in the chai family. I know chai just means tea, but doesn't it? But um, I am going with dark chai, Twining's flavour. Twinings, twinings, however you say it, twinings. Twinings, yeah. Um, they do a lovely thing called dark chai. It's quite sort of clove heavy, but um, also mm. lots of other spices in. Again, feels very wintry or, or or autumnal. And I was trying to think what book I would pair it with, and I'm going to go with um, A Winter's Tale by, no, sorry, Told in Winter. It's published under both titles by John Godden, uh, Rumor Godden's sister, which oh. is a very snowy book, uh, and it's a perfect sort of wintry snowy snowy book to read with a wintry drink lovely yeah okay 
That's a nice question. It makes me want to go and read Christmas pudding now. Um, <laughs> Kirsty asks, who is your least favourite writer? Gosh. Oh, that's tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's lots of writers who I think are terrible, like, you know, Dan Brown or something. Um, but I, I think because it's one I had high expectations of and have just really struggled to get on with, I might say Iris Murdoch, which I know will upset some people. But uh, I've only read two, The Sandcastle and The Sea of the Sea, but uh, I just really hated The Sea of the Sea. And it's what I think what makes me so cross with her is that there are so many things in, you know, her writing is really beautiful and often, and then the plotting will be so bizarre, or the characters so inconsistent, or it's so self-indulgent. And it's like, oh, it's so close to something I enjoy, but has enough ingredients that I really don't like that it's spoiled something that I th- could have been wonderful for me. Sad, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think who I've really disliked as a, their actual writing. Um, I mean, I've had many disappointments in reading um, in my time. Um, I think, do you know what has disappointed me is I love one of my favourite books is Possession by A.S. Byer. Mm. But I thought every single one of our other books that I've tried has been dire. And that has been a real disappointment to me because, you know, when you think you've discovered something, you think, oh, wow, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to want to read everything. And I feel like she just had this one anomaly that was great. And then the rest was just self-indulgent toddle, really. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, th- I, mean, I wouldn't say she's my least favourite writer because Possession is amazing. But she's probably been my biggest disappointment because, I, yeah. you know, I, I was really looking forward to discovering the rest of her work. Um, whose writing can I just not stand? Um, I don't get on with Zadie Smith, I'm afraid. I've just remembered Mary Webb. I should mention how much I loathe her. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I have only read one and a half pages of her writing, but that was enough to put me off for life. Um, Wim says, of the British Library Women Writers books, which is the most uplifting and most poignant? Should, should I, well, maybe, I don't know how many you've read, but maybe... Do you want to have a go? I think, or like, I I think I've read read them by virtue of having already read them, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, uplifting. Um, why don't you run us through them first and then I'll be able to... Sure. Well, I mean, for me, the most uplifting is Oh, the Brave Music, I know you didn't love, by Dorothy Evelyn Smith. And I would not um, call it uplifting, but sure. <laughs> I, th- I mean, it is quite sad, but I, in a way that I found, like, it, the sense of hope that runs through it, I found very uplifting. I'm just saying... The first half of it, I mean, it's like one thing after another. So. <laughs> well, it's because you didn't get to the second half. It's very hope-filled. And wonder, you have to retry, you have to try again. Uh, um, and the most poignant, I would say, is The Tree of Heaven by Mae Sinclair because of the, the things it has about World War One and the way that infects lots of people's lives. Um, but there's, yeah, there's Dangerous Ages by Rose McCauley and Mama by Diana Tatton and Tension by Nellifield and Tears So Intoxicating by Mary Essex and Father by Elizabeth von Arnhem and Append to See the Peep Show by F. Tennyson Jesse, etc. Et I et cetera, just et loved Father. Absolutely mm. loved it. Um, I think that's probably the most uplifting one for me. Um, so cheerful and enjoyable. And actually, I think Append to See the Peep Show is incredibly poignant. I mean, I know it is, that it... it yeah. You know, obviously a tricky subject matter, but you do feel so much sympathy at the same time. I won't say any more. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, I think that really touched me when I read it. But didn't we read it originally in conjunction with an E.M. Delafield that was on the same... We did, with Messalina of the Suburbs, yeah. Yeah, which was a poor comparison with Pinsir Peepshow. Yeah, it was good, but not definitely not in the same league. No. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, Gina, which book in your collection is the most attractive and why? Mm. Yeah, I tend not to go all out for really attractive books. I guess I just tend, I don't I like them to be nice, but I don't have really like beautiful ornate ones. But I do really love my folio set of the Map and Lucia books, um, which are just I mean individually they're just they're nice. I guess but altogether it's just a lovely box. They're very pretty pastel colours. They're very they feel lovely. They they're very nice to hold and read, uh, and I have them on my top book top shelf of bookcase. I'm looking at them now. They're just very pleasing to look at. That's nice. Um, I do very much like book editions and unlike you I think I'm I kind of strive to have the nicest edition I can mm, and then I'll mm. get rid of all the others um, whereas you, you know you just hold on to all of them um, <laughs> so um, I think for my the prettiest book that I have um, I've got very nice editions of Jane Austen's because I do collect those over time Um I think, yes, do you know what? My nicest edition, I did to pay quite a lot of money for this, which is more than I normally do, but I have a beautiful 19th century edition of Persuasion that is, um, it's got lots of gilt on the boards and beautiful patterns and gorgeous mm. illustrations, and it's one of my prized possessions. I think I remember seeing that, yeah, in yeah. my house. Yeah. Lovely. Uh, Read me another. Says when you finish a book and are lukewarm about it, do you keep it or do you donate it? I'm pretty sure I know the answer to that for you. We all know the answer. Look, I am a colour. If you don't need it in your life, if it brings you no pleasure, you've got to get rid of it. If it were an item of clothing, you wouldn't keep it. Therefore, with books, they go to the charity (laughs) shop straight away. I don't have that much bookshelf space, so for me, my library is very much representative of things that I love and want to keep forever. I know other people have the attitude that they want their library to be representative of all the things they've read over time, but I used to be like that. And then I realised that I was going to die buried (laughs) under the weight of my own books. So I became much more ruthless. Um, are you assembling a, a table or something in the background there? Oh, no, sorry, I was just putting something in the bin. Sorry. <laughs> um, I am better than Rachel paints me as, as being colour. I do get rid of books quite often. Oh, come I think, on. I do, I do. I think Luke, I don't know about lukewarm. If I dislike it, I certainly don't keep it. If I'm lukewarm, it could go either way, depending on the mood. If I, and if I, you know, if I have lots of books by the author, then I might keep her. A hoarder. <laughs> I'm, I'm down to bare bones. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he just bought a new bookcase. <laughs> and can I just collection. say, we had a conversation before we started this, and the reason why Simon has a thirty centimetre tall Christmas tree <laughs> is because he doesn't have enough space because of his bookshelves. If you can't fit a Christmas tree in your house got too many books it's okay guys i'm going to simon's in january we're going to sort the situation out oh you keep threatening to do that and i keep thinking you're joking i'm getting less and less sure that you're i'm joking. not joking i'm gonna bring boxes with me <laughs> but i am bringing you a book when i come so you, you know are. you're part of the problem there'll, there'll be a, some kind of trade-off i really want to be actually one of those people that helps people who are hoarders 
I'm not a hoarder. I think I'd be really supportive, but also... I think, I think you'd be that... awful. <laughs> <laughs> You're not at all supportive. I can be if I have to be. <laughs> I'm sure you can. Oh, dear. Okay, well, Bill is asking, what do you have against travel literature? It has been dissed a couple of times over the last 100 episodes. I often reread Sybil Bedford's A Visit to Donatavio. Have you heard of it? Um, I think this is probably directed at me uh, because yeah. I have dissed travel literature a couple of times. I haven't. I have heard of that book. I haven't read it. I have read some of her travel literature, um, Pleasures and Landscapes. Uh, for me, though, the reason is that um, I I tend to find I really well. I really prize authenticity in writing. I've realised, and which can mean lots of things. But what I tend to mean is I want a writer to write about the time and the place that they know best. Uh, and it could, you know, the plot doesn't have to mirror their lives. But the reason I don't really get on with historical fiction or people writing about other countries is because I lose that sense of the author really knowing their world like a, like a, you know, both historical and geographic native. And so a travel literature for me is often just describing, often it's often describing things they can see, which as talked about many times doesn't work very well with my mind. And it always feels like an outsider looking in, which is what it is, I guess. And I would much rather hear about that place from an insider. Interesting. Yeah, because you like travel literature sometimes. I love travel literature. And Sybil Bedford is one of my favourite writers, actually. Yes, I do have a copy of A Visit to Donatavio. I haven't ever read it in its entirety, but I've read bits of it. And I always give it to classes to read when we do travel literature, because I think it's a wonderful example. Um, I love reading about people's impressions of of travel, because I love travelling. And so, yes, I think it's very important genre and one that I enjoy reading a lot and don't read enough of actually I don't make enough time to read it I've got loads of it on my shelves um I normally you know like when you're on holiday and you buy it and you're like oh yeah I'm gonna buy this book about um being here and then you get home and haven't read it and then that's it but yes um I don't have anything against travel literature at all uh, Sarah says, where to start with Virginia Woolf? I've only read A Room of One's Own and I don't know which of her novels to pick up first. Well, Sarah, what a question. Um, well, my favourites of Virginia Woolf, and I think one it's one of her later novels and therefore I think is easier to read for someone coming into her because her earlier novels were wonderful and more experimental. I would say is Between the Acts. Her last novel, yeah. Uh, I think The Years is her last novel. Um... I'm going to disagree with you. No. I think The Years was posthumous, wasn't it? Between the Acts was posthumous. Oh, I've got them too confused. Maybe they were both posthumous. But... Oh, ow! Sorry, I just got scratched by a cat. Oh! <laughs> Never get scratched by a dog, just saying. Oh, that's nonsense. You certainly do. I'm going to lit this up now because this is annoying me. Okay, shall I answer as you do that? Yeah. Um, so the one I always... Oh, recommend... damn, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was quietly confident. Oh, annoying. <laughs> um, I always suggest Jacob's Room because, as you say, her, some of her earlier ones were experimental, but the first two weren't very. And then Jacob's Room was the one, the first more experimental one in terms of format or form. But I think it's it's not you know out there in the way that the Waves is, or even to the Lighthouse. Uh, and it's the if you're going from reading more traditional novels and trying to get more into the the sort of extremes of what she does with language and Jacob's Room is a great gateway, I think. Yes, and it is also wonderful. And wonderful, yeah. 
Don't start with the waves, whatever you do. <laughs> no. Um, Courtney asks, where would you recommend for hill walking in the UK? I love this question. I love that. that so um, nothing to do with books, but Courtney did say she was going to come visit the UK at some point and would like to do hill walking. And I'm going to, as a Worcestershire boy, um, not born and bred, but bred, uh, I'm going to put a good word in for the Mulvans, uh, which are beautiful. And there's a very good bookshop in Malvern called the Malvern Bookshop. So you can bookend your trip around the Malverns, which isn't not massive. You probably wouldn't want to go there for a week. But if you're doing a couple of days of hill walking, the Malverns are lovely. Um, well, I would say you've got to go to the Lake District. Um, the problem with the Lake District, though, is that nine times out of ten, you're not going to see any lakes because it's so misty. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got to time your trip very well. Otherwise, seriously, don't bother. I've been to the Lake District about five times, and last summer was the first time I actually saw a lake. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the Lake District, although it's often mountains, isn't it? They're quite. It's not. If you're going for gentle hill walking, it's probably oh, right, I mean, yeah. there are some there, but I um, mean, hills are hills, as far as I'm concerned. Or if not there, then I highly recommend the Peak District. Beautiful. Also lovely. Also yeah. lovely, and lots of lovely little towns and villages um, where you can go book shopping and get good food. And Chatsworth, of course. Yes. And in fact, back to Lake District, Sam, I think it's called Sam Reed's Bookshop in Grasmere. It's really lovely. And there's a very good gingerbread shop in Grasmere as well. Oh, my goodness, well. yes. So, You've got to go to the go to the Grasmere gingerbread shop. Join the queue. It moves quickly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wim says, what are your favourite National Trust properties? Oh, I love National Trusting. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it is a verb as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> love a natty tea, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just the perfect destination, isn't it? You know you're going to get a good quality slice of cake and a good cup of tea, yes. and there's going to be toilets and a good shop. <laughs> um, That's lovely, yeah. I have many favourite National Trust properties, but I will keep it brief. Okay. I will go regional. Um, in Kent, which is where my family live, um, Chartwell is wonderful, as is Knoll. Chartwell is the former home of Winston Churchill, and Knoll is the former home of Vita Sackville West and her family, and they are both amazing. I think Knoll is maybe the largest property the National Trust has. It's huge. Yeah, maybe it's massive, isn't it? And it's in its own deer park in um, Seven Oaks in Kent. It's wonderful. Um, and elsewhere in the country, I think the most amazing place i've been to is cragside in northumberland and the guy who owned it in the 19th century so it was built in the 19th century and he pioneered the use of hydroelectricity in the uk and oh, wow. his, it was the first house in the uk lit by hydroelectricity he built his own plant he built a whole he was an engineer he like he figured it all out and all of the stuff is still there so if you want to go and see a perfectly preserved 19th century house but also see that that kind of scientific ingenuity and how that was impacting on the domestic sphere that's a fascinating place to go and it's beautiful gardens it's all built into the cliffside it's lovely no that sounds lovely i've not been to that one that i can remember um, my favourite is a bit predictable. It is Monk's House, Virginia Woolf's house. Oh, yeah, that is lovely. Uh, obviously, for the associations, the house is lovely too, but it's certainly not one of the one of their most spectacular buildings. But um, just for being in her house was really moving. I've only been once, but I really loved it. Yes, and it's very close to Charleston if you want to do it. Both. It is, which sadly is not National Trust. You'll have to pay no. for that one. Yes, but, you do. Um, and Sissinghurst, uh, another of oh, yes. the West in Kent. Also yeah. lovely. We are spoiled in Kent for National Trust properties, I have to say. Yeah, um, like nearer to me, I really like Chasselton House, which is um, 
not one of the grandest ones, but it's, they've left it as it was in the 90s when the last person from the family moved out. So it has that real sense of being still lived in. Um, and apparently it's where they first wrote down the rules of croquet. So well, there you are. What's not to like? All a history. <laughs> um, Jenny asks, have either of you tried Nemo's Almanac, an extremely fiendish yearly treasure hunt slash book quiz with no Googling allowed? There's a collection of excerpts on literary arts that seemed right up your street. I did one year get a copy, and in fact, I think possibly two copies, um, and it is very hard. I didn't realise it was a sort of annual thing, to be honest. I, th- I only saw it that year. Um, I've never heard of it, it, and I'm Googling it right now. Yes, I can see you copying and pasting from the Google Doc. As you, as you <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's one of those ones that they often have, like, by the, well, that year, it was by the Teal in Waterstones. I think I just picked it up there to give to someone who in turn gave it to me. So we spent a christmas dinner sort of reading things to each other and it is very hard but literary aunts love a literary aunt jenny yeah um according to the amazon um description a well-kept secret of the literary world for over a hundred years oh wow this is a cool- be fun to get older ones wouldn't it yeah well there we well apparently it also this is for the 2017 edition it says the fiendishly addictive nemo's almanac quiz is now available in book form for the first time. So what form was uh, it in before for a hundred years, one wonders? That's a good question. Is it in a newspaper or something? I don't know. Please tell us, people who know. Yeah, Jenny, get in touch. Um, another one from Bill, who says, Why is Shelley Hazard, especially her transit of Venus, never been mentioned on teal books? Because I've, neither of us have probably read it, have we? No, I haven't read it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Simple answer. I have wanted to read her, although the great... Is it called The Great Fire? I think is the I one that I've seen recommended. Um, there's no, uh, there's no reason, Bill, other than the fact that we've not read it. I, in fact, we often get emails recommending authors to discuss, and it's often authors we haven't read. And I think there's sort of a touching and very flattering belief that people have that we've read everything. I think, we which really we haven't. certainly haven't. Yeah. Um, but maybe yeah. Next, I don't own any charity houses, but maybe next time I see one in a charity shop, I will give exactly. Transit of Venus a go. Yeah, I mean, I can't say I've come across her myself, so I, uh, I will investigate. Um, I think there's a backlisted episode on one of her books. It might be that one. So maybe I'll listen to that. Yes. Okay. Report back to me. Sally, I have just finished reading Oh, the Brave Music and absolutely loved it. Well, there we go. I'm thinking of trying out other books by Dorothy Evelyn Smith, but what if I've already read her best and thus will be disappointed? When trying a new author, maybe you shouldn't always choose the best known or most highly regarded work to begin with. Yeah. Um... I will say I've read four Dorothy Evans Smith books. I know the Brave Music is my favourite of those, but there are others that I think you'll enjoy. But it's yeah, it's a good point because you don't want to have like your experience you talked about with AS Byer earlier, mm. where it's just continue downhill. And indeed, for Frank Baker, as mentioned, I love Miss Hargreaves, and I continually read his other books, and I've been disappointed. Well, I don't think I'm even disappointed anymore because I know they're not going to be as good. But I just plough my way through in the hope that there's another diamond in the rough. Um, but yeah, I often do start an author with something a little lesser known, partly because it, you know, I'm just feel a bit contrary when it comes to that, it seems. Um, but also, I don't know if it's deliberately to avoid being disappointed, but I just think, oh, maybe, maybe the, if I start with this one and I like this one, just think how much better her, the most famous one might be. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, a bit tricky really isn't it because 
I think you always get set up with these when you discover a new writer that you love, but you don't have any knowledge at the time whether that is their best novel or not. I mean, I think I've often started not with people's best novels, but um, I think Dorothy Evelyn Smith as well, because I remember saying to you, well, should I get some others? And they're not easy to get hold of. So um, you risk spending quite a lot of money and being disappointed. If they were all super cheap, I don't think it would matter as much, because, I mean, I certainly didn't get along with her. So... I'm, I'm sorry to say. I mean, I was excited yeah. because you praised her so highly. But... <laughs> you do remain the only person I know who's read it uh, who didn't enjoy it. And I would have—I was so confident that you would. I still think you might another time. Do you know? Maybe I just wasn't in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, with her, Miss Plum and Miss Penny is so different that you might enjoy that one. Okay. The, the other ones I read by her are very similar to the Brave Music. Um, and our final question, thanks again so much for these questions, is from Paul, which I really enjoyed this question. Which author have you mentioned most? I'm going for Austin <laughs> Wolf or Marilyn Robinson with a dark horse outsider each way bet on a Mill. <laughs> All I don't of whom I think have been mentioned in this episode at least yeah. once. <laughs> How would we know? Well, it's true. I mean, Paul might know better than us, but... Um, Certainly, I think the book that's mentioned most is either Emma or Miss Hargraves. They're so predictable, aren't they? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think probably he was was, um, joking with this question. In fact, one of the other questions he sent me, I didn't put them all in, was um, how many topics has Rachel actually come up with? (laughs) 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 Who knows? I think it's double figures at the very least. (laughs) Well, you know, it's not my fault that my my topics often get shouted down. Oh yeah, this classic me just you know, bullying you. Out of, <laughs> I'm a victim. Out of your voice, <laughs> your soothing, soothing voice. Yes. Um, well, you let us know which one you think we've, which author you think we've mentioned the most, um, <laughs> and you can yeah add a few points in for. Although actually, I don't, maybe we didn't talk about Marilyn Robinson in this episode. We didn't at all. I don't think we mentioned her name at all. Goodness. Um, well, that was really, I really enjoyed that. That was fun. Yeah, really good fun. And lovely as well to um, to see what has interested people about what we've said. Yeah, that's true. So you sort of put it out there and then forget about it, really. Yeah. But, uh, um, thanks so much for listening. And we'll yeah. do another one of these in 50 episodes' time, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much, uh, everyone. Yeah. And we'll see you in the new year. Yeah. Happy New Year. Happy Merry New Year. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Bye. 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 Bye.